Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor Essa Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Eudaimonia Pod. This episode is sponsored by the Classic Learning Test. The CLT is challenging the College Board, the so-called nonprofit that owns the APs, the PSAT, and the SAT exams with alternative assessments. The reality is that standardized testing drives curriculum. What gets taught gets tested. The College Board focuses on bland informational texts, while the CLT puts students in front of the authors that we love here at Sacred and Profane Love. Dante, Flannery O'Connor, St. Augustine, you get the idea. Students can take the test at home via remote proctoring. You do not have to drive them to a testing site. And then they get their score back within a week, and they can then send those scores to more than 200 partner colleges that accept the CLT, and even colleges the CLT is not partnered with, but which will still consider the CLT as a supplemental part of the application. If you want to learn more, please go to cltexam.com. And you can also check out their podcast, Anchored, hosted by Jeremy Tate, which features conversations about classical education. In this episode, I speak with Thomas Fow of Duke University about the Polish poet Czesław Miłosz. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast hosted by me, Jennifer Frey. This afternoon, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Thomas Fow of Duke University. He is the Alice Mary Baldwin Professor of English with secondary appointments in Germanic language and literatures and the Divinity School. He has published far too much for me to list, so I'll just say that he works on literary and philosophical subjects from the 18th through the 20th century. Welcome to the podcast, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you very much. So our topic this afternoon is the person and the poetry of Czeslav Miloš. So let us begin with two obvious and important questions. First and foremost, who was Miloš and what has his influence been on poetry? And then secondly, why are you drawn to his poetry? And what do you think we can learn from him? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, just the question of who he was, uh, I'm sure it would have bemused him because he was a person of many, many parts and um, always deeply suspicious of any attempt to sort of describe or fix his own sense of who he was. He uh, had um, an extraordinary gift for introspection, um, but uh, as well as an immense gift for, for vision. Um, there is, for those who are just interested in his life, uh, happily there has been, uh, I think six years ago or so, uh, a Harvard University Press published uh, um, Andrei Franaschek's biography of Milos, uh, which is an absolutely terrific biography by any standard. Um, and uh, Milos, uh, you know, had a very eventful life. I, I would say it sort of breaks down in some ways into two halves. The first half 
uh, more or less, um, from 1911 when he was born in Lithuania, still a province in the Tsarist Russian Empire. Um, uh, he, it spans all the way until his defection from communist Poland, uh, where he had served, for which he had served as an uh, ambassador or as a, as a member of the embassy in Paris in 1951, he defected. A very difficult decision. And after about nine years of great uncertainty about where he was going to be and, and his wife and children and how they were going to make a life, he eventually was able to obtain a visa and join them in the United States and um, lived uh, on balance, of course, a much more peaceful, less tumultuous existence uh, as a professor at UC Berkeley in the Slavics department. Um, he returned after the uh, fall of the Iron Curtain. Uh, he returned to Poland and uh, lived his last years in Krakow. Um, so just to say that Milos had lived from the late years of the Tsarist Empire to the first presidency of George W. Bush is to give you a sense of the scope of his experience. Why did, he, yeah. why did he defect? Uh, there were, uh, Milos was, even during the war, was keenly aware of the horrors of the Russian Gulag mm -hmm. and of the profoundly repressive nature of Soviet-style communism. Uh, it was clear to him once uh, it became evident that the war would be uh, lost by Hitler uh, that um, the long-term threat to freedom of thought and expression was going to issue from uh, the Soviet-dominated governments of the satellite states in uh, Poland um, and uh, all the other countries behind the Iron Curtain. And um, he really couldn't see himself making uh, a surviving intellectually and even spiritually in that world. Um, and he, of course, wrote a book that made him quite famous, um, uh, The Captive Mind, right. uh, which uh, dwells on the many ways in which intellectuals and artists ended up um, deceiving themselves about the possibility of coming to some kind of livable arrangement with the Soviet-style government in Poland or nearby. And in the event, most of them came to a very tragic end. I mean, some committed suicide, others ended, you know, in drink and, um, you know, uh, in alcoholic sort of, you know, binges. They, uh, it was really a very, uh, it was clear to him that that was not a livable proposition in the long term. Right. At the same time, um, exile in many ways is the dominant sort of trope that governs so much of his um, mature poetry after he defects. And exile, of course, for a poet is more than just having changed countries. It is losing touch to some extent with the evolving language in which you write. Mm -hmm. And to his very end, Milos wrote only in Polish, mm -hmm. um, although he actively collaborated on uh, translations of his poetry. Um, 
more about that, I think, later. But um, it meant also exile from everything that had, in a way, informed his outlook on the world, the places and the feel of, of you know, his rural Lithuania, where he had grown up, um, of Vilnius, where he had gone to high school and to do his studies, uh, and of course of various cities in Poland, also where he had uh, spent much of the war years, often under harrowing circumstances. So all that reality was suddenly sort of remote, and he had to find his way into this utterly different world of uh, the United States. Initially, for a brief while, he was uh, an emissary still under the Polish government in uh, New York and Washington. But then when he defected, um, then it was Berkeley, which in many ways was uh, as surreal and distant compared to the world that he had experienced as a younger man. Yeah, so I'm curious. So these years, uh, these kind of post-war years before he defects, so like yeah. 1945 to 1951, he's yeah. writing poetry. Oh, yes. Is he primarily known as a poet? What's his reputation as a poet during that time? Uh, at that point, his reputation is growing within the Polish literary community, certainly. Um, but uh, internationally, he's still quite unknown. Um, that really doesn't change until the appearance, under, until the publication of The Captive Mind. Mm -hmm. And then, oddly enough, of course, he is known initially and somewhat uh, improbably as a political writer, rather than as the poet uh, as which he principally understood himself. Right. So the position at Berkeley, is that based on his political writing or his poetry? Uh, the, the position... Um, at the point that he was brought there, I think was mainly uh, driven by the poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, politically, in fact, uh, you can imagine, uh, and there are some interesting uh, reflections on by Milos in his autobiographical uh, reminiscences. Politically, he found things at Berkeley to be strange and sometimes deeply alienating. Mm -hmm. um, this sort of um, infatuation of the 1968 student movement with some form of socialist or even communist um, form of governance. He had seen what that was like. Um, right. He was not impressed. He thought, that, uh, he thought that the free speech movement struck him as bizarre because he had really known what it was like not to have free speech. And the claim by those in Berkeley to, uh, who, who argued that this was indeed something they were denied struck him as improbable because mm -hmm. it, it just wasn't true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, Milos, you know, he tested sort of the ideological and political waters very cautiously and, and is really a, a very detached, not detached, but distant observer who feels this uh, in this world uh, a bit out of sorts uh, much of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that goes also to his experience of the landscape. Um, California, I mean, there, there's this poem to Robinson Jeffers in which, you know, he uh, reminisces about being in Death Valley. And this is, sort of, is a motif in Milos that to some extent there are places in, in the natural world in, that seem palpably hostile to human existence. Mm -hmm. That's truly one. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and so utterly different from the 
historically sort of uh, slowly grown landscape of rural Lithuania, mm. you know, dotted with villages and churches and, and the sound of church bells and, and such. Um, a very alien world in many ways to him. Yeah, well, I yeah. think, I mean, I think generally America is one, just so big. I mean, even California is. It's yes. huge. It is. It certainly is. <laughs> it's enormous. And I think that is difficult for Europeans, you know. Mm. And then also, really, a lot of America is wild yeah. in a way that it's yeah. not the case in Europe. I mean, there are some places like Norway where, okay, there's a lot of mm -hmm. wilderness, but certainly, I mean, you don't see that in, uh, on the continent, at least. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I, I mean, I would imagine there are all kinds of alienating <laughs> features of, of America for, right. for Europeans, but especially at that time. I'm wondering if there's like a marked shift in his poetry from the kind of pre, from the Polish years, you know, to, mm -hmm. to the American years. Well, yes. I mean, uh, the shift, I think, is more gradual overall. Um, the poetry uh, until um, 1945 is understandably, especially those, those harrowing poems about the war, is obviously very much defined by very particular moments of uh, historical uh, experience of upheaval, of danger, um, like Campo de Fiori or um, you know, uh, poems like that. Um, so th that obviously recedes over time. Um, but um, Milos was always someone who read very widely and then so always tried to sort of uh, gauge the deeper currents of history as they might unfold, even if they were not palpable and apparent to the people living in that history. So he, you know, it's quite attentive to um, historical shifts in, in America, um, in his poetry. I suppose the main shift actually comes somewhat later. In, 19, in the 1970s, Milos' poetry begins to veer more notably towards questions of religion and theology. He, of course, had had a, a very strong Catholic sort of Thomist um, school, uh, schooling in Lithuania, um, uh, on which he then proceeds to reflect quite a bit. In the 1970s, he actually teaches himself Greek and Hebrew so as to translate uh, books from the Bible into Polish. Hmm. Um, the Book of Job, for one, not surprising, not a surprising choice. Mm -hmm. um, and um, his poetry really begins to sort of have a more and more Olympian perspective in which you know, history uh, is the kind of drama um, where the participants in that drama seem to never quite understand the parts they are acting. Um, and so uh, as he gets older, you know, by then he is uh, in his 60s and later 60s, um, the relationship between history and, uh, and spirituality and Christianity, questions of eschatology begin to sort of become more pronounced. Um, there's a kind of gradual detachment. I mean, a beautiful poem that might be worthwhile just briefly quoting 
is the poem uh, called Late Ripeness, mm -hmm. uh, which is um, just before he turns 90. So it was one of the remarkable things about Milos is that he um, continued to write poetry to the very end. In fact, while he was in Krakow and he was gradually uh, losing his eyesight, he still had a, an assistant be, uh, come to the house and he dictated poems almost to the last few months of his life. Okay. Um, and um, in this poem, um, not, uh, he writes, not soon, as late as the approach of my 90th year, I felt a door opening in me and I entered the clarity of early morning. One after another, my former lives were departing like ships together with their sorrow. And the countries, cities, gardens, the bays of seas assigned to my brush came closer, ready now to be described better than they were before. I was not separated from people. Grief and pity joined us. We forget, I kept saying, that we are all children of the king. For where we come from, there is no division into yes and no, into is, was, and will be, and so forth. I mean, it's a, it's a very meditative poem that tries to sort of create some kind of momentary fusion between historical and eschatological time. Yeah, I mean, my sense just from reading over the poems that you suggested to me mm -hmm. is one gets a strong sense of a kind of very deep humility, right, mm -hmm. on the one hand, and then a yearning for transcendence on the yes. other. And he's he's a religious poet in the sense that he writes from a very biblical place. I mean, it's very clear mm -hmm. that this is someone who knows the Bible. <laughs> oh yeah, um, and, and is alive to the at least the powers of its symbols and its metaphors and its themes. Yes, uh, I think the one qualification that one may have to make here is that when we use the phrase of a religious poet in uh, uh, in the way that that it sounds in in the United States today, I think we tend to often misconceive of it. Um, I think uh, American religious culture is actually, oddly enough, that's at least my impression, Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, is often informed by all kinds of things, but not by humility. Right. And, and Milos actually, when he is, if he, if he is a religious poet, then rather in the sense in which Eliot saw, saw himself as being a religious poet, something about which he also felt very dubious. I mean, there's that 1935 essay by Eliot on religion and poetry, mm -hmm. which he says, you know, poetry with, uh, that seeks to sort of convey a concrete religious message is really not what I try to do. I don't think it can even be done. Mm -hmm. Poetry is, uh, has a religious dimension insofar as it wrestles with what it means to actually be a religious person. And for Milos, that wrestling, that struggle, that uncertainty and that doubt was always there. Um, but the doubt would have been, um, could only be there because he understood that this was something one had to wrestle with. It was not something that could be avoided. And so um, there is in Milos, um, there's a poem, for instance, to Father Chomsky uh, many years later, Father Chomsky was someone who had been his religious, had been his religious instructor in middle school. 
during his middle school years. And Milos, uh, about whom Father Chomsky said, you have, the, you have the face of a criminal, he said to the student. <laughs> um, uh, Milos uh, certainly was a very uh, argumentative um, student by all accounts. And so he challenged the father in all kinds of ways. And that, I think, in many ways um, defines Milos persona. He was not opposing Christianity, but he was really trying to understand it and what it could, what it had to mean, what claim it had to him. He understood that it had a claim, but he also struggled with making it uh, intelligible to himself. Mm -hmm. And so, and of course, that struggle is deeply informed by the presence, the omnipresence of evil and of suffering, which he had seen in his formative years all around him. Not least of which is that he was from the beginning deeply uh, alienated from uh, the alliance between Polish nationalism and Polish Catholicism. Milos was always wary of a Christianity that allied itself with a nationalist uh, set of interests. Right. And um, during those years, of course, you know, after the end of World War I, you have uh, Poland and Lithuania as, as you know, states uh, in their own right. There, obviously, there is a, uh, there's considerable impetus for a, a sort of nationalist uh, movement. And it grows stronger and, and more troubling because the increasingly anti-Semitic tones begin to enter uh, in the 1930s. And so for Milos, you know, one of the challenges is how, how do you uh, commit yourself to a religious, meaningful, profound spiritual vision without it being hijacked or co-opted or in some sense um, distorted by such political uh, maneuvers and interests. Yeah, and I think that's a special challenge for the Polish. Yes. Yeah. Maybe just to clarify slightly, so when yeah. I said he strikes me as a religious poet, I really meant something very general, and that is like, to me, the kind of like one of the fundamental religious impulses is to affirm the world. Yes. To affirm the world in spite of, right, the evil yes, and the scars exactly. and the suffering. And I just, yeah. at least in what I read to prepare for this podcast, I just see him as a man who takes very seriously the task of affirming the world, yes. mm -hmm. of trying to understand it, but always admitting, you know, that he doesn't, right? He's yeah. like constantly saying, yeah, I don't know. Right. right. I won't pretend to know. And really just struck by being. Yes. Right. I yes. mean, just really yeah. struck by the wonder of existence. And I think that's deeply Absolutely. religious, actually. I completely agree with that. And uh, I think with those, the, what you have just said, you have actually sort of pinpointed the two prongs that define us poetry, which is a kind of um, endless being mesmerized by the sheer richness, abundance, and beauty of the world uh, and its particularity. Um, and uh, at the same time, a kind of fright at the 
evident fact that we don't seem to be as human beings capable of achieving lasting and meaningful orientation in this world. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where the so figure of Pascal later comes in. Um, you had asked about his influence. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think a couple of people, three in particular, are worth mentioning in this context. Uh, so Adam Zagajewski, who you know, um, who I think in many ways his poetry is sort of perhaps the most obvious successor to the poetic project of Milos, yeah. uh, certainly in Polish uh, literature, you know, says that when he read Milos first uh, at the library at the Jagiellonian uh, University Library in Krakow, he said the richness of its wor of the work, he says, was overwhelming. This constant energetic quest for the invisible in his poetry, a quest that arose amidst the most concrete sensual images. As he says later, he tried to drink in the cosmos. Mm -hmm. Beautiful formulation. The other, the next one that I think is sort of quite insightful is uh, again on the relationship between poetry and religion or theology also, is Robert Pinsky, the poet laureate who also translated some of uh, the, uh, of Milos's writings. Um, the, uh, he speaks uh, of Milos's conception of irony. And he says that truth uh, in Milos' oeuvre, I think we see this, you know, I mean, truth manifests itself as kind of a structural irony. And Pinsky, I think very helpfully points uh, out the following. He says that, you know, it's not what he said, calls American irony, which he, by which Pinsky means of quote, uh, Buster Keaton on a railroad handcar solemnly gesturing aside the locomotive that's heading toward him. So that's kind of uh, a, a kind of situational and very circumscribed sense of irony. Instead, he says with Milos, what we have that, uh, is um, uh, directed toward an appreciation of our limited circumstance, not so much toward an uh, appreciation of our limited circumstances, but toward the larger limitation of last things. He calls it an eschatological irony. Um, and I think that's in, in very subtle and simple ways that comes through. I mean, take a poem like uh, the early poem called Faith. This is uh, in the New and Collected Poems. Uh, it's on page 48, um, although I think you are using a different edition. Um, this is part, is this like part of the larger yeah. poem, The World? Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. So uh, I'll just, I think this worth reading. It's a very short poem. Uh, faith, he says, faith is in you whenever you look at a dewdrop or a floating leaf and know that they are because they have to be. Even if you close your eyes and dream up things, the world will remain as it always has been, and the leaf will be carried by the waters of the river. You have faith also when you hurt your foot against a sharp rock, and you know that rocks are here to hurt your feet. See the long shadow that is cast by the tree, we and the flowers through shadows on the earth, what has no shadow has no strength to live. Now, this peculiar line that, you know, rocks are there to hurt our feet. Mm -hmm. uh, well, um, in the sense that um, things are not there because they are convenient. They're also not there because we might wish to imagine them. We don't, as he says, dream up things. This, is, this goes to Milos' motif that he shares with Pascal, which is a deep distrust of the romantic concept of the imagination. 
Milos is a poet who wants to see what is there, not to imagine another world that might be somehow beyond. That world will reveal itself only if we attend to what is actually here. Yeah, and I wonder if that's, I mean, yeah, so he's, I mean, I think it would be safe to call him a realist in that sense, yes. right? Oh, yeah. time to, you know, he often talks about the importance of naming things, yeah. right? Where, you know, to name something properly, mm -hmm. right, is to to make the appropriate contact with the reality, right? Yeah. To say something about its being or its essence. And I think that's, <laughs> again, I mean, I don't know, as, as someone who has very sort of Thomist proclivities, mm -hmm. I'm deeply attracted to this vision. I mean, I wonder yeah. if how much of that, you know, training, uh, his education ends up in his poetry because he does yeah. mm -hmm. take being seriously, right? And he does seem to see a connection between being and truth and beauty and goodness, right? Yes. I mean, it's the transcendentals. Um, yes, I, I think you're right. His realism is deeply informed by his sort of training with uh, which unfolded within a very robust sort of Thomist or neo-Thomist uh, framework. Um, I think it, it uh, in a way, one could also say, however, that it was through poetry that he made that framework meaningful to himself. Yeah, and I think that's um, wonderful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, yeah. that's uh, perhaps uh, always how it should be, right? I mean, that, that you know, um, Nietzsche once nicely observed that, you know, you repay your teachers very poorly if you remain a student forever. At a certain point, you need to then also take what they gave you and cast it in a mold that actually uh, reflects your particular aptitudes and gifts. And one of the gifts Milos undoubtedly have had um, was of um, being tremendously visual. Um, he had a profound ability to see and to pick up the pregnant detail. Um, um, take, I mean, there's a wonderful moment early on in his, no, in his great poem, the um, uh, a treatise on poetry from 1955. Mm -hmm. And in the, um, uh, in that um, poem, he sort of is very, uh, in the preface to that poem, he's quite, um, no, actually in the, uh, in the um, uh, opening section, Beautiful Times, Krakow, 1900, 1914. Mm -hmm. uh, just to look at those opening lines, cabbies were dozing by St. Mary's Tower. Krakow was tiny as a painted egg just taken from a pot of dye on Easter. In their black capes, poets strolled the streets. Nobody remembers their names today. And yet their hands were real once, and their cufflinks gleamed above a table. Now that little detail, right? I mean, they're those cufflinks, they're both pregnant because it, it sort of suggests a kind of late 19th century bourgeois sensibility. Mm -hmm. That uh, the irony between the, the sort of the uh, flawless attire and the fact that now nobody remembers their name. Right. Um, no, that's how I mean. Miros captures the real by looking, 
This is something he shares, I think, very much with the sort of poetics that, that emerges vicariously in the writings of Simone Weil, mm -hmm. with whom he was yes. very much, uh, no, I mean, Simone Weil's conception of visual, uh, of attention, um, attention to the real. Um, uh, and also with Iris Murdoch, um, who I don't know that he read her very much or that he even knew of her, but uh, Iris Murdoch you know, speaks of, you know, poetry as fundamentally being the, the habit of accurate vision. Yes. Um, and that's, I think, something Milos very much would embrace. Yeah, well, I love that. I mean, I, yeah. Iris Murdoch is <clears throat> all over this podcast. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> any yes, any yeah, listener yeah. knows I, I yeah. love Iris Murdoch in mm -hmm. a in a very deep way and very yeah. informed by her yeah. uh, by her vision of the literary arts and mm -hmm. I see a lot of that in Milos. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I, I have a question though. <clears throat> so he has a couple of poems that have treatise in the title. Yes, yes. yes. And um, you know, it's unclear <laughs> in what sense these are treatises at all right, um so yeah. like one wonders is he mm -hmm. is he being tongue-in-cheek is he being ironic yes, I think um so. is he mm -hmm. saying something about what he's trying to do in in these right. so-called treatises and it and it also so i mean i have that particular question but it also kind of connects with a more general question um which is how he understood generally the task of the poet you know the charge right. of the poet what is poetry for right um, I think it's safe to say that Milos had in his early school uh, years and uh, years at the university encountered enough treatises to know that what he was writing was not a treatise. Right, so there, course, is, yeah. there is definitely irony at work here, um, especially because the treatises almost invariably open with something very particular. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they are not claims, uh, they don't make sort of deductive arguments based on first principles, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, the first principle, if there is one, is simply to look and see what's there mm -hmm. and then describe it to the point that what you describe becomes uh, almost inadvertently revelatory. That, that there is a, a kind of epiphanic dimension begins to push to the fore, um, almost in spite of, you know, it's not imposed on something, but it sort of arises from things themselves. Um, what is his conception of poetry? Um, well, certainly, I mean, that's so in some ways goes also to, you know, my sort of, what what is my interest in this poetry is, um, you know, as it happens, uh, paradoxically, perhaps, my training was in European Romanticism. Um, and uh, I'm actually, I've over the years uh, drifted away uh, from that field, although I still teach it occasionally. But I, I actually think uh, uh, the poets I now find most compelling are in some way or another, almost uh, sometimes uh, programmatically, but typically sort of, um, implicitly at least, um, anti-romantic. Milos is, uh, mm -hmm. T.S. Eliot is, mm -hmm. um, um, someone like Zagajewski, I think, is also. Um, the, Mir, um, Rilke is, um, uh, in his book on uh, Rilke, uh, the German uh, theologian Romano Gordini uh, wrote uh, that Rilke essentially had this understanding there were two ways in which you could approach poetry. One was as, and the German word here is aus 
sage and the other one is ausdruck so either as a statement or as an or as self-expression and Rilke certainly starting with his new poems and then in the Duino elegies increasingly moves toward poetry as a kind of impersonal statement and this uh, impersonal aspect I think is also uh, quite prominent in Milos even though he's more comfortable than let's say the Rilke of the uh, you know, new poems um, to uh, uh, with using the first person perspective mm -hmm. um, but it is not it, uh, what he sees must be will be true to the extent that it is not contingent on him seeing it um, so that's why he says in that poem faith right that's why he has that wonderful uh, so charmingly simple line that says um, that you know those floating leaves of which he speaks even if you close your eyes and dream up things the world will remain as it has always been so the world's constitution cannot be a function of our imagining um, um, and uh, so that's um, I think what fascinates me is that Milos thinks about poetry ultimately as, a, as the quintessential form of veridical and normative speech um, it is um, like Eliot and Simon Way, I think writers who had clearly a strong impact on him, he met actually Eliot in London at some point. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he realized that poetry is really of no use at all if it doesn't struggle towards objective truth. That's, that's what it must struggle towards. It doesn't mean that it has a purchase on it. That would be a naive and, and irresponsible claim to make, but that must be its telos. And so um, anything else, he feels and he's seen plenty of anything else I mean bad poetry bad or, or uh, uh, profoundly untrue political writing anything else ends up uh, being an abuse of truth and of language um, so that's uh, you know something that uh, I think emerges very clearly uh, at the beginning also of the uh, treatise on poetry where he says you know the opening here first the, in the preface first plain speech in the mother tongue hearing it you should be able to see as if in a flash of summer lightning apple trees a river the bend of a road and it should contain more than images sing-song lured it into being melody a daydream defenseless it was bypassed by the dry sharp world you often ask yourself why you feel shame whenever you look through a book of poems as if the author for reasons unclear to you addressed the worst side of your nature pushing thought aside cheating thought poetry seasoned with satire clowning jokes still knows how to please then its excellence is much admired but serious combat where life is at stake is fought in prose it was not always so and our regret has remained unconfessed novels and essays serve but will not last one clear stanza can take more weight than a whole wagon of elaborate prose so he's there is a sense of um reclaiming poetry from this sort of niche pursuit that it has become in the modern era there is a kind of vatic 
uh, voice uh, a kind of uh, sense of the poet as someone who speaks the things themselves, uh, as Goethe had also put it. You know, um, uh, that um, that poetry should not be an esoteric pursuit. He writes a wonderful essay called "Against Incomprehensible Poetry," uh, which makes this point quite well. Um, so, this is uh, essentially an attempt there, and this is what fascinates me about Milos, and I think it's uh, at the very heart of what he is trying to do, is to reclaim language from its many from the many forms of abuse that it suffers. And he had seen that, of course, uh, and memorably had analyzed it in, you know, the captive mind when he, you know, uses this uh, Persian trope of Ketman, a language of total insincerity, um, and then traces it in so many of his contemporaries um, who making arrangements with the pot political powers that be end up betraying their language and ultimately thereby themselves. Right. Yeah, language. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this, I mean, it's so interesting. Um, that's how Walker Percy, uh, the American novelist, also described his task was to yes. take, I mean, he thought in particular religious language had become so cheapened and shot worn yes. yes. and so debased yeah. that really, yeah. like, all he could do is try to reclaim it for That's us. right. Yeah. And yeah, I was always really, really struck by that but because it just seems true. Right. I mean, you, you, you can, it's like, you can literally see it happening on Twitter. There's like a useful concept. And then a year later, it's just garbage. You can't do anything with this word yeah. anymore. Yeah. There's something inflationary about the, the effect of social media, of course, on language. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Cause it accelerates, yeah. Yeah. you know, a process that's already there and it just that's right. yeah. puts it into a kind of hyperdrive, but I, okay. So. So the purpose of poetry is to be truth revealing, it's, you know, some kind of cognitive enterprise. So if poetry can reveal truth to us, right, then it's not going to reveal truth to us in the same way that philosophy reveals truth to us or that theology reveals truth right. to us or that any. So what what is the particular way that the poet manifests the truth? Yeah. Um, right. So, I mean, take uh, as a counterexample philosophy or let's say a particular kind of sort of more analytic philosophy. Um, <laughs> sure. Um, which, I'm an analytic philosopher, by the way. I, I know. I, and I will, I'll be gentle. Um, <laughs> Let's not trash it too much. <laughs> no, no. But, but uh, there is, there are fundamentally, uh, there is a, a kind of premise uh, in certain schools of philosophy that truth is something that can be claimed um, in the form of correct propositions. Yes. Um, Melo's argument, I think, is not against that. He would just say the truth that, that, that what for him the word truth signifies is something that we don't claim, we experience it. Uh, and we experience it because it is actually overwhelming. Right. It is not something that we can own, that we don't, we don't carry it like we carry our wallets. It's, it's not, it's not portable property as Dickens would call it. It is something entirely else. Yeah. 
Yeah. And part of that truth is, for Milos, is that we are always um, uh, experiencing it in the form of a certain dissonance. Um, the truth of what is in dissonance vis-a-vis -vis the truth that should be. Truth is, is uh, in, for Milos, is overwhelmingly indexed with a sense of pervasive disorder, of cosmic disorder, of suffering, of evil. Um, and, and therefore, the experiential dimension, rather than its propositional aspect, is what matters. Right. Um, right. Well, I, look, I can yeah. totally agree that the analytic conception of truth is very limiting, right? I mean, it's just a property of propositions. And I think that if you compare that notion of truth to say this notion of truth you find in St. Thomas Aquinas, or, 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 or frankly, even in Aristotle, you know, it's, I'm more attracted to the classical yeah. position, right? Where, where truth is, is about being, and it's about conforming oneself right. to reality. One of the texts that I had mentioned to you is, is this little uh, prose poem, Essay, Being. Oh, I loved that. That yes. was probably my favorite one. Yes. Um, you know, this, I mean, my edition, I think it's on page 243, somewhere thereabouts. Um, yes, uh, 249. Um, and, uh, you know, just a couple of lines from it, and then from one other poem, I think, throw into relief the sense that the moment of truth for Milos is also a moment in which a certain kind of as he admits, actually, a kind of almost Manichaean dimension reveals itself to us um, about existence. But here, it's it's a very it's a very beautiful, it's a very uplifting poem in many ways. He's on the subway and sees this presumably very beautiful young woman, um, and uh, then he um, says. Uh, a slightly snub nose, a high brow with a sleekly brushed back hair, the line of the chin, and then this little dash and the side sidebar. But why isn't the power of sight absolute? And in a whiteness tinged with pink, two sculpted holes containing dark, lustrous lava, to absorb that face, but to have it simultaneously against the background of all spring vows, walls, we waves, in its weeping, its laughter, moving it back 15 years or ahead 30, to have. It is not even a desire. That's an important line, right? Seeing is here not a form of voyeuristic. It's, a, uh, it's not a form of voyeurism. It's a form of marveling that this is there. Um, she got out as Raspai. I was left behind with the immensity of existing things. A sponge suffering because it cannot saturate itself. A river suffering because reflections of clouds and trees are not clouds and trees. So they said that um, that's sort of for me there's a moment of truth. There is a moment, uh, there's always a moment of dissonance, maybe a strong term, there's always an element of something ultimately unreachable. There's too much of it, of that which we see. And when we really look at it carefully, we understand that we will never be entirely capable of participating it with the fullness that we sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. again, it goes back to what 
I see as the religious impulse, this wonder yes. being and connected to that wonder is the sense of its inexhaustibility, right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, once once you realize that being is inexhaustible, yeah. I mean, right. that's... <laughs> the platonic motif ultimately of philosophy beginning in wonder. That's right. Is, is really there. And it that's is, right. uh, in that sense, it's a, a deeply classical, a deeply Platonist sense that yeah. influenced Milos, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what do you think Milos would say the poet has to teach the philosopher, right? Um, if anything, or what the poet has to teach the theologian, if anything? Uh, I'm, yeah, it's hard to say because I think Milos um, would probably, I mean, it's hard to ventriloquize him here. I don't want to do that. But my, my suspicion would be that Milos thinks you can only profit from this kind of poetry. First of all, it's the only poetry he can write. So it's not like he has options. This is he, what he writes at the moment that he does write it is also what he must write. He's not, he's not conducting frivolous experiments in verse, but he's simply trying to give a, a kind of witness-like account of what he has seen. And so it's that poetry in the sense of testimony rather than self-expression simply doesn't give much leeway. You, if you want to be faithful to being, that's what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. That means, however, that for any reader, philosopher or otherwise, um, whether the poetry in the end, um, whether it uh, can give them something, whether it will speak to them, uh, is very much contingent on whether they are searchers or whether they are, or whether they um, are more invested in control. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's sort of the, fundamentally the distinction between classical and modern philosophy. Modern philosophy is essentially in its methodological habitus. I mean, Husserl in his late years figured this out very nicely in the crisis of European sciences. Modern philosophy in its, in its um, uh, habits is essentially risk averse. It wishes to, you know, that's why its emphasis on method is so pronounced. Mm -hmm. Um, classical philosophy is, is um, a response to a sense of abundance, mm -hmm. um, to a visual and other kinds of epiphanies. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it's, it's telos, if there is one, is arguably a form of wisdom rather than of control. Right. Yeah, and, I, yeah. I think that's really, um, <laughs> I think that really hits at something uh, deeply important just in general, but like something that I kind of vaguely see in, in not only in the poetry, but also I, I, I read the witness of poetry just yes. to mm -hmm. try to prepare. And one of the things that is sort of like a, a theme in Milos is his daimon or the yes. need to yeah. rely on a daimon. And, and I think and he even writes about why it's important to um, why why it's important to read the New Testament in Greek because yes. you, you want to get a sense of yeah. of the importance of the demons. And then he says something like, "Well, you know, all that we can hope for is that we're possessed by good demons rather than bad ones." And right. and he speaks of himself as a poet, as someone who is possessed, right? And yeah. this is 
super platonic. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is yeah. all over Plato, especially the Phaedrus, or this yeah. this idea of yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I and I think that it is it is such a different perspective because you know, I mean, we just think it's all about autonomy and control, and we mm-hmm. have very little space anymore for right. just receptivity. Right, and and the more one is invested in you know, what Augustine would call sort of the libido dominandi, you know, the more one is invested in that, uh, the more I mean, Plato and the Phaedrus shows that very clearly when he discusses a form of eros that is purely possessive. Ultimately, a form of I mean that's you know, in the first speech in which sort of Socrates exposes the absurdity of, of a sense of eros as possession. Because what then happens is that you no know, total control ultimately can only mean the annihilation of that which we would possess. And pa- the paradox is that with a quest for autonomy and control, we ultimately also find ourselves reaching a point of diminishing returns where the world becomes ever more remote and strange and illegible because we don't allow it to work it's magic on us, but we have set up so many walls defending ourselves against contingency, risk, uncertainty. Um, And so then, then in a way, the the modern uh, ethos of uh, responding to the world by seeking to dominate and control it becomes really a form of sort of intellectual panic. Right. Um, and Milos, um, yeah, I mean, I think he is, a, it's a, in that sense, profoundly um, a philosophical realist in, in the Platonic and Aristotelian sense and with obviously with the Thomist um, legacy, uh, also very prominent given his training. Yeah. 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 So where did he... <clears throat> Where did he end up spiritually at the end of his life? What, I mean, did he return back to the church or? He did. Uh, uh, is, uh, I forget in which poem it is, but uh, he he says, you know, he, he was quite uh, attached to uh, going to mass, attending mass, as long as he didn't listen to the sermons of the priest. Uh, <laughs> you know that's not a bad strategy. <laughs> I found it to be actually quite useful on many, many occasions. Yes. I didn't say that, but yes, you know. um, but yeah, um, but no, it is. I, I think it is the 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 sense of um, uh, what what the liturgy gave him. I think, uh, and and I think Romano Gordini, for instance, and you know, Josef Ratzinger in their respective works on the spirit of the liturgy also pointed this out. Is that uh, the liturgy is one of the few ways in which we can still experience time as having a rhythmic structure to it, mm-hmm. rather than being simply invariant chronometric time. Mm-hmm. No, so no, because the time of scheduling is is essentially arrhythmical. They are, you know, it's purely adventitious. Mm-hmm. So if we want to experience time as having a certain kind of inner structure and organization to it, then the liturgy is one of the few places where we actually both mentally and also in a physical way almost understand it because at a certain point you actually know when you should be kneeling, etc. It sort of becomes part of a habitus. Mm -hmm. And that has a deeply, uh, it gives one a certain sense of orientation. Mm -hmm. 
I think Milos in his later years found that quite uh, crucial. Um, and um, you know, he uh, received the last uh, uh, extreme unction and last sacraments uh, before he passed. That was very important to him. But he was always deeply um, vexed by his own, um, I wouldn't want to say doubts, but by his sense that he was a terribly inadequate believer. Um, which I think is a very good way to be. He was very yeah. humble. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's you know, because there's nothing more perilous, I think, uh, to Christianity than than this self-image that is too often conveyed in the public, that that those who profess themselves to be Christian claim to have somehow answers and certainties um, uh, that are... Uh, and, and that they have in a way thereby transcended their human frailty. Yeah, well, spiritual pride is you just... Can't. Yeah. Spiritual pride yeah. is pride. You yeah, know? exactly. And, and and so, yeah, I mean, the later Augustine, I think, becomes sort of more of a presence, uh, as, of course, does also Pascal. Um, and then, um, yeah, also he read quite a bit of Jacques Maritain in his... Oh, did he? Over the yeah. years, yes, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. About Pascal, I mean, just to give you a few interesting quotes, you know, in, uh, he writes um, in uh, he writes a letter to Thomas Merton, with whom he actually exchanged letters for a decade uh, huh. until until the sudden death uh, of Thomas Merton. But he says, "What Pascal taught me was quote that nothing is more important than to find a common language with those who search in despair through poetry, prose, any means, being one of them." the blind leading the lame. Yes, what is needed is a new attempt of a Pascal. Or then think of, um, in another conversation uh, that Cynthia Haven records, he says, for a man in crisis, as I am, Pascal is a spiritual brother. Um, and that comes through in some of his poetry, like in the treatise on theology, to be human is to be completely alien amid the galaxies. Right. That's uh, I mean almost almost verbatim really of you know, right. the immensity of those spaces frightens me in the in the pensées right. um, when he speaks of quote the childish earth of illusion or he says we walk the earth without much comprehension in this world we walk on the roof of hell gazing at flowers right um, and uh, you know that that sort of um, I think. There, the humility, the, the sort of neo-Augustinian 17th century poor royal uh, spirituality that, that I think uh, uh, really speaks to Milos comes through. Yeah, I mean, there's a really strong theme of exile, at least from the poems that, that you sent me to read. Yes, I, can't, yes. I can't remember which poem it was, but there was one poem where, you know, he begins by just asking his reader, like, Yes. Can you really feel at home in this world? Right? This is, yeah, this is actually the poem that I was just now thinking of called An, an Appeal. An Appeal, an appeal right. Yeah, yeah um, that one. Let me read out the opening long sentence, which is so marvelous. Because, again, what you have here is this incredible sense of the directness of address. I mean, it's called an appeal. But it's also formally crafted, like, you know, this is someone sitting right across from you in a kind of, um, in a setting in which, frankly, 
there is no escape. The question is going to be put to you and you're going to be stuck with it. Mm -hmm. um, so he says, you, my friends, wherever you are, whether you are grieving just now or full of joy, to you, I lift this cup of pungent wine, as they often do in the land of France. From a landscape of cranes and canals, of tangled railway tracks and winter fog, in the smoke of black tobacco, I make my way toward you and I ask you a question. Tell me, for once at least laying caution aside and fear and guarded speech, tell me, as you would in the middle of the night when we face only night, the ticking of a watch, the whistle of an express train, tell me whether you really think that this world is your home, that your internal planet that revolves, red hot, propelled by the current of your warm blood, is really in harmony with what surrounds you. What a remarkable way uh, of writing, right? I mean, it's, um, it's poetry, and yet it is also in, in a, it is so remarkably free of, of any kind of verbal conceit. Uh, although beautifully inter, uh, interposed are these uh, sort of almost cinematic details, right? These little visual details, you know, France, the landscape of cranes and canals, tangled railway tracks. One, he can often with immense uh, efficiency conjure up complex visual memories in us. He doesn't describe, but he's, these are almost like sort of a little ciphers that trigger for us a visual association we've already had. So that when we read the poetry, it's more like a case of platonic remembering of what we have seen, mm -hmm. rather than being at the mercy of him describing to us something we have never seen. Right. And that creates a sense of community. Because at that moment, the reader, the addressee of this poem is actually able to feel, yes, I have seen that somewhere. I may not know where, but these are, this is the same world. And that's after all the question is this world that we all have in a way in common. Is it really our home? Right. Yeah. Right. And it's, I mean, it's very Augustinian, I think. Yes. Yes. Have a strong yeah. sense of your own exile. So I guess now I just want to turn to a really practical question and that's about translations and additions. Yes. So it is true that you and I are working from slightly different collections and translations. Yeah. So I just have, what do I have here? The collected poems, 1931 to 1987, Harper Collins. Oh yeah, that's an older edition. Yeah. Yeah. So 1988. So is that not as good? Is there a better one that you recommend for our listeners? No, it's. I mean, the poetry is the same. I don't know whether you can see it. You probably can't. But um, it's uh, the what superseded it uh, and is now actually the the main edition in print is called New and Collected Poems 1931-2001. Okay. Um, that does not yet include the last poems which appear in the collection, the last collection published by Milos during his lifetime called Second Space. Second Space? Yes, that's a slim little volume that appeared uh, in 2001 when he was 90. Um, and then there is also a, a more recent edition of some uh, poems that were posthumously published. So Milos and translation is, no, that's a really interesting topic. Um, for one thing, um, I would say that we are, I mean, this is a unique case 
Um, I generally don't think poetry translates well at all. Milos is in some ways a marvelous, a miraculous exception. And, well, that's good because most of yeah. us don't know Polish. <laughs> that's right. And I mean, I'm, uh, I've talked with quite a number of people. In fact, I, I was in touch with Robert Huss uh, recently mm -hmm. because I kept wondering why his treatise on morality had never been translated, which is mm -hmm. uh, clearly a major poem. And uh, now Robert Huss, I think more than anyone has uh, really uh, uh, earned um, uh, is, is deserving of immense praise for the work that he did all those years uh, translating uh, together with Cheslav um, the poetry. But but it was really Huss who who was the driving force here. Um, and the poetry just reads, I find, uh, spellbindingly well. Um, no doubt there are formal aspects, metrical aspects, uh, sonoric aspects that you know, uh, sound patterning, etc., that we lose, and that's uh, I'm sure it's, uh, in some cases quite quite regrettable. Mm -hmm. But um, I can not think of another poet who translates so powerfully. And this is something that actually Seamus Heaney, who writes a beautiful tribute to uh, Milos in, in a volume um, that Cynthia Haven published with Poets on Milos, um, in which you know, Seamus Heaney uh, remarks on Milos um, and on the almost extraordinary translatability of, of the poetry. Um, he uh, 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 let's see. I mean, so first of all, I think one of the reasons why it translates well is that um, he cultivates, Milos cultivates a very direct and in many ways a very simple and plain style. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that helps. Um, he avoids, as Zag Adam Zagajewski puts it, he avoids all uh, lofty hermeticism and language games. It uh, doesn't mean that the language is not in all kinds of ways intricately playful at times, but but it's not, there's never something, uh, there is no esoteric sort of uh, objective there. Um, it also helps that Milos himself, who had clearly a very considerable gift for languages, um, you know, spoke Russian, Polish, Lithuanian, French, uh, English, um, that he worked uh, together with the translators and that he also wrestled with translation. I mean, he taught, as I mentioned, he taught himself Greek and Hebrew to translate uh, Old and New Testament books. Yeah, which um, is incredible. Yeah, it's, I mean, and, and by then he was in his late 60s. Yeah, the idea of me is, learning a new really language. Mind. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, your brain fine. is ossified. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can attest to that. Yes, it is very difficult, very it's difficult. Very remarkable. Yeah, he um, and then I would say that it's fascinating. You get to see in his exchange of letters, which is the only exchange of his, uh, no doubt, very far-flung correspondence that has been translated, is "Striving Towards Being" is the title of this little collection of letters he exchanged over the over a decade with Thomas Merton. And when you read the first letters, you realize, oh, Milos, this 1958, he's still quite a bit uh, struggling, quite a bit with English idiom. Uh, ten years later, by the time the correspondence ends, that's all gone. Mm -hmm. So it, you can really see uh, almost in the little graph over time how quickly he found his way mm 
mm-hmm. into the language. Mm-hmm. And, but he had wrestled with translation too, which made him a very good judge for, you know, uh, uh, and, and the person to collaborate with Robert Huss and Robert Pinsky on translating the poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Terrific. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. Yes. But I am very grateful for this delightful conversation. Yeah, just thank you for helping me appreciate Milos more. I'm really grateful. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or on the app Lyceum. And you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod. And we're also over on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell your friends about us please leave us a positive review on iTunes and also please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to become a monthly patron. As always, I'd like to thank our most recent patrons for their support, Lawrence Bausch and Ben Constance. Many thanks. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Jessica Hooten-Wilson to talk about Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy and John Kennedy Toole's A Confederacy of Dunces. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.